Now, Health Matters with Daniel Martin. Welcome to Health Matters right here on CNA 93. And I'm Daniel Martin. Good to have you on board, everybody. Did you know that the number of children and adults who are going to be identified to be on the autism spectrum is going to actually continue to grow in the years ahead. We're going to talk a little bit more about how important it is for parents and yourselves to learn more about the signs, the symptoms, the idea of understanding autism better, and what some new guidelines could do in terms of helping with that as well. We're joined on today's edition by Dr. Aishwarya Ramkuma, who's a consultant from the Division of Developmental and Behavioral Pediatrics from the Department of Pediatrics of Kutepuat National University Children's Medical Institute at the National University Hospital. Welcome to the show. Hello. Hi, hello, Daniel. Thank you for having me on the show. Absolute pleasure. I think before we start diving into this, the growth that we're expecting to see and, and some of the new guidelines and how that could help identify autism going forward as well. What is the current scenario like, Doctor? How is autism diagnosed today? So, I mean, thank you for you know even talking about autism here, Daniel, because I think it is a condition that is growing in incidence over time. Uh, we are definitely seeing a lot more children and adolescents be diagnosed to be on the autism spectrum. Um, we know that autism is a neurodevelopmental condition and it presents in early childhood, meaning typically most children present with features of autism somewhere between the ages of zero to five years of age. Having said that, there are others who may be diagnosed much later on um, in older childhood or even sometimes in adulthood. So typically autism affects a person's social communication and interaction with others and is characterized by restricted and repetitive behaviors. Mm -hmm. So what this means is that the first features of autism are usually related to a young child not interacting typically with those around them. For example, by not making eye contact or not being able to respond appropriately when their caregivers call their name. I mean, they often have a language delay as well, meaning that they do not attain their typical developmental milestones for talking and understanding what others tell them. Sometimes the first signs can also be unusual behaviors that are repetitive or very intense. For example, being preoccupied with objects of a specific shape or having an interest interest in a particular topic or object. So usually when any of these signs are noted, uh, for example, a two-year-old child who's not talking or an 18-month-old who does not have appropriate eye contact. So when these signs are noted by either parents or by teachers in a preschool, children are usually referred for further evaluation to a specialist clinic, such as a child development unit at the National University Hospital. I think in line with that, though, is some parents might think that, oh, this is not, either they choose not to see the signs and hope that it'll go away, or they think it's, oh, maybe this is the personality of the child, this is just what they're like. Is that misinformation? Are there a lot of things that are misinformations that you would like to see cleared up as well? Certainly. You know, I think one of the most common um, perceptions, I would say false perception, is that um, autism is something that cannot be diagnosed early or, you know, a child who's as young as two years old cannot be on the autism spectrum. So typically parents say he's very young, you know, he's just, um, he's two years old. I don't think it's a problem, right? Um, but the truth is that we definitely can see and identify features of autism at, by two years. And in fact, in many children, these features can be seen even as young as 12 months and often wow. by 18 months of age. Um, and we also 
also know that the earlier the child is, meaning the younger the child is when we start the treatment, the much better the outcomes because the young brain is growing. It's much more receptive to any treatment that we do. So I always tell parents that, you know, um, it's all it's never harmful to start treatment for autism. Um, even if, you know, let's say the small chance that it's not autism in the end, really the, the focus of the therapy is usually focused on the child's communication or the areas of need. So it's going to benefit the child rather than harm the child, right? So I think that's definitely an important uh, misperception that it's uh, too young to be yeah. diagnosed with autism, right? Now, the other common um, misinformation or misperceptions we often encounter are those relating to complementary and alternative medicine. So especially in the last um, few years or so, there have been many treatments which are, are, have been purported to actually cure autism. Um, you know, this includes a, 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 a vast range of things, right? From um, chelation therapy to heavy metal testing to like using antibiotics and um, other medications. But really, I mean, parents are often vulnerable. They mm. want the best for their child. But the truth is that none of these complementary treatments cure autism. And in fact, many of them can harm children um, rather than benefit them. So that is why in our, these guidelines, we've actually very clearly highlighted those complementary treatments that should not be used because of potential for harm. And we've clearly laid out what may you know, be considered if at all. But I think misinformation regarding complementary and such alternative treatments is a huge, uh, huge concern right now. Let's talk about those new guidelines. This is the second edition of the Clinical Practice Guidelines on Autism Spectrum Disorder in Children and Adolescents that was just launched in the middle of this year, just past the middle of the year. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about what is new. What what does it add in terms of how we diagnose and treat? Yeah. So, you know, these guidelines were actually commissioned by the College of Pediatrics and Child Health Singapore, as well as the Academy of Medicine Singapore. I mean, they were, the intention was to provide an updated set of guidelines to the original 2010-1 because there has been an exponential growth in the field of autism from 2010 compared to now. Um, so a multidisciplinary work group of 22 core members from various organizations involved in the care of children on the autism spectrum um, comprised the work group. And myself and Dr. May Wong from KK Women's and Children's Hospital co-led this work group. Now, the, the main um, change or you know, update in these guidelines is that we really provide a lifespan approach to autism, um, including not just preschool children, which was what the 2010 guidelines did, as was in keeping with the knowledge at that time. But this time we included adolescents on the autism spectrum as well. And we have covered a whole lot of conditions from screening and, uh, sorry, a whole lot of topics from screening and diagnosis of autism to investigations, medications and interventions in autism, as well as co-operating conditions, and most importantly, caregiver support as well. So the guidelines provide recommendations to help doctors, other healthcare professionals, as well as educational professionals um, in their care for children and adolescents on the autism spectrum using the best scientific evidence that is available. We reviewed basically, you know, 800, more than 800 literature and scientific wow. research articles across the world. And very importantly, we contextualize these to our local um, community and local Singapore scene as well. Um, so, so the guidelines really provide these recommendations that can, pro, uh, that can 
help their clinical care. Um, we also have a layperson version which accompanies the guidelines, and this is freely available together with the other guideline materials um, on the website of the College of Pediatrics and Child Health. Um, and this layperson version is help intended to help parents and caregivers understand autism better. So I think the whole aim really is to you know improve our care for children and adolescents on autism spectrum by doing what is evidence-based practices. What does this mean for the parent who's bringing their child in to see the doctor and who's receiving information from the doctor who's maybe you know gone over the guidelines and become a bit more familiar with the recommendations? Is it going to change things a lot for the parent at the end of the day? Yeah, I, I think, you know, the parents can take um, knowledge and reassurance that what we recommend is evidence-based, meaning it is not, um, you know, something that is going to be harmful to the child and it's something that works. Uh, and and the, in that way, the quality of care would be better, hopefully. I mean, that's the aim. And I think from parents' perspective, one of the key messages that the guidelines convey is also the fact that um, not to adopt a wait-and-see approach, you know, that the earlier you come forward, if at all you have any concerns about your child, you know, whether it's the behavior, whether it's the language, or maybe there could be a family history of autism and you're just worried. So um, the, the key mess, one of the key messages is that come forward early, um, seek professional help so that we can guide you along, along with it, because there's a lot of, um, you know, misinformation or different sources of information. Parents often turn to Google, right? Yeah. I mean, this is really Dr. Google, which is like the most consulted doctor right now. <laughs> but I think we strongly encourage the parents seek help um they are very um in, within the singapore scene it's very accessible um seeking specialist care i think the important message is to come forward get your child evaluated and then you know go along with the recommendations and typically we provide support for not just the child but also the parents so yes the you mentioned the idea that we've even got a section now for the caregivers that's very important exactly. as well Exactly. You know, I mean, I'm sure you're aware and our listeners too are aware about the increasing um, awareness of caregiver stress and autism, especially over the last month or so. Um, and the guidelines have an entire section devoted to this. I'm just recognizing that um, uh, caregiver stress is real. It is higher in caregivers of children on the autism spectrum compared to a, a typically developing child. And we emphasize that professionals should be prepared to support caregivers in multiple aspects, you know, providing them with information, for example, on source on support groups for autism within Singapore, for example, uh, providing them with information on financial resources and even things like transition planning. So planning for their child as they go through the key transition stages, for example, from preschool education to formal education and then after formal education and beyond. So uh, these guidelines will help professionals to support caregivers better as well, hopefully. And this is vital because going to something that you mentioned earlier on, how many people might fall prey to the, the Facebook ad or the YouTube thing that recommends this and recommends that, saying that there is a cure. The bottom line is there is no cure per se for autism, is there? And that the sooner that the family can adapt to the very challenging lifestyle changes that's required, this is going to be a lifelong scenario. So partly yes, but and partly no, in the mm. sense that um, so we do have very good behavioral treatments which can help autism. Many children, after undergoing such behavioral uh, treatments or therapy-based services, can really improve in their communication skills and their social interaction skills. Um, such that for many of these children, they kind of you know um, it may look like they've been cured, but mm. uh, 
So we really focus on a functional approach, meaning the aim is for the child to be able to communicate, to be able to interact with those around them. So we have good evidence-based treatments, right? So, but when it comes to medications, there are no medications that directly can cure or improve the core features of autism, mm -hmm. but we may use medications to treat co-occurring conditions in autism. So for example, sleep problems related to autism or maybe specific challenging behaviors. So, so it's along that line that we must make the distinction clear about a cure for autism from a medication point of view. Um, but what you said about, you know, um, often it being a lifelong journey is very true because the needs of the child often vary over time. So from early childhood to adolescence, to later on in adulthood as well. So caregivers do need that kind of support, you know, to, to transition and journey with them yeah. along the entire lifespan. Um, and, and the guidelines also provide, I think, very valuably for professionals a quick guide regarding complementary and alternative medicine. I spoke about that a little bit earlier. So that, you know, as professionals, for example, as a general practitioner, they can actually advise parents, hey, you know, to say, for example, antibiotics are not needed in the treatment of autism. So they have very clear source of information to say what therapy is actually recommended and what therapy should not be used. Uh, for, and, and that would be very important advice for caregivers as well. My thanks to my guest, Dr. Aishwarya Ramkumar, consultant from the Division of Developmental and Behavioral Pediatrics, Department of Pediatrics, Kutekwat National University Children's Medical Institute of the National University Hospital. This has been Health Matters, zooming in on autism. Before making any decisions based on the information in our program, please consult a medical professional.